Chapter Three, Part Two of the Rock of Chickamauga. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Rock of Chickamauga by Joseph A. Altseeler. Chapter Three, Grant Moves, Part Two. Long before the boats reached a point level with Grant's camp, the army was being formed in line for embarkation on the gunboats and transports. The horses were to be placed on one or two of the transports, and the men filled all the other vessels. "'You can't down Grant,' said Pennington. "'A failure with him merely means that he's going to try again.' "'But don't forget the navy and the father of waters,' said Dick, as their transports swung from the shore upon the dark surface of the river. The mighty rivers help us. Look how we went up the Cumberland and the Tennessee, and now we've harnessed a flowing ocean for our service. Getting poetical, Dick, said Warner. I feel it, and so do you. You can't see the bluffs any more. There's nothing in sight but the lights of the steamers and the transports. We must be somewhere near the middle of the stream, because I can't make out either shore. There were two regiments aboard the transport, the Winchester and one from Ohio, which had fought by their side at both Perryville and Stone River. Usually these boys chattered much, but now they were silent, permeated by the same feelings that had overwhelmed Dick. In the darkness all lights were concealed as much as possible, with both banks of the vast river hidden from them. They felt that they were, in very truth, afloat upon a flowing ocean. They knew little about their journey, except that they were destined for the eastern shore, the same upon which Grand Gulf stood. But they did not worry about this lack of knowledge. They were willing to trust to Grant, and most of them were already asleep, upon the decks, in the cabins, or in any place in which a human body could secure a position. Dick did not sleep. The feeling of mystery and might made by the tremendous river remained longer in his sensitive and imaginative nature. His mind, too, looked backward. He knew that the great-grandfathers of Harry Kenton and himself, the famous Henry Ware and the famous Paul Cotter, had passed up and down this monarch of streams. He knew of their adventures. How often had he and his cousin, who now, alas, was on the other side, listened to the stories of those mighty days as they were handed from father to son. Those lads had floated in little boats, and he was on a steamer but it seemed to him that the river with its mighty depths took no account of either steamer or canoe being all the same to its vast volume of water he was standing by the rail looking over when happening to glance back he saw by the ship's lantern what he thought was a familiar face a second glance and he was sure he remembered that fair-haired ohio lad and smiling he said you're one of those ohio boys who marching southward from its mouth in the ohio drank the tributary river dry clear to its source the mightiest achievement in quenching thirst the world has ever known you're the boy too who told about it the youth moved forward gazed at him and said now i remember you too you're dick mason of the winchester regiment i heard the winchesters were on board but i haven't had time to look around it was hot when we drank up the river but it was hotter that afternoon in perryville god what a battle and again at Stone River, when the Johnnies surprised us and took us in flank. It was you Kentuckians then who saved us. Just as you would have saved us, if it had been the other way. 
I hope so. But, Mason, we left a lot of the boys behind. A big crowd stopped forever at Perryville, and a bigger at Stone River. And we left many of ours, too. I suppose we'll land soon, won't we? And then take these grand gulf forts with troops. Yes, that's the ticket, but I hear, Mason, it's hard to find a landing on the east side. The banks are low there, and the river spreads out to a vast distance. After the boats go as far as they can, we'll have to get off in water up to our waists, and wade through treacherous floods. The question of landing was worrying Grant at that time, and worrying him terribly. The water spread far out over the sunken lands, and he might have to drop down the river many miles before he could find a landing on solid ground, a fact which would scatter his army along a long line, and expose it to defeat by the southern land forces. But his anxieties were relieved early in the morning, when a coloured man taken aboard from a canoe told him of a bayou not five miles below Grand Gulf, up which his gunboats and transports could go, and find a landing for the troops on solid ground. Dick was asleep when the boats entered the bayou, but he was soon awakened by the noise of landing. It was then that most of the Winchester and the Ohio Regiment discovered that they were comrades, thrown together again by the chances of war, and there was a mighty welcome and shaking of hands. But it did not interfere with the rapidity of the landing. The Winchester Regiment was promptly ordered forward and, advancing on solid ground, took a little village without firing a shot. All that day troops came up, and Grant's army, after having gone away from Grand Gulf in darkness, was coming back to it in daylight. They say that Pemberton at Vicksburg could gather together 50,000 men and strike us, while we've only 20,000 here, said Pennington. But he isn't going to do it, said Warner. How do I know? No, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. There's nothing mysterious about it. This man Grant, who leads us, knows the value of time. He makes up his mind fast, and he acts fast. The Confederate commander doesn't do either. So Grant is bound to win. Let Z equal resolution, and Y equal speed, and we have Z plus Y, which equals resolution and speed. That is victory. I hope it will work out that way, said Dick, but war isn't altogether mathematics. Not altogether, but that beautiful study plays a great part in every campaign. People are apt to abuse mathematics when they don't know what they're talking about. The science of mathematics is the very basis of music, divine melody, heaven's harmony. You needn't tell me, said Pennington, that a plus B and Z minus Y lie at the basis of Home Sweet Home and the Star Spangled Banner. I accept a lot of your tales because you come from an old state like Vermont, but there's a limit, George. Warner looked at him pityingly. Frank, he said, I'm not arguing with you, I'm telling you. Haven't you known me long enough to accept whatever I say as a fact, and to accept it at once and without question? Not to do so is an insult to me, and to the truth. Now say over slowly with me, the basis of music is mathematics. They said slowly together, the basis of music is mathematics. Now I accept your apologies, said Warner loftily. Pennington laughed. You're a queer fellow, George, he said. When this war is over and I receive my general's uniform, I'm coming up into the Vermont mountains and look your people over. Will it be safe? Of course, if you learn to read and write by then and don't come wearing your buffalo robe. We're strong in education and manners. Why, George, said Pennington in the same light tone, 
I could read when I was two years old, and as for writing, I wrote a lot of textbooks for the Vermont schools before I came to the war. Shut up, you two, said Dick. Don't you know that this is a war and not a talking match? It's not a war just now, or at least there are a few moments between battles, retorted Warner, and the best way I can use them is in instructing our ignorant young friend from Nebraska. Their conversation was interrupted by Colonel Winchester, who ordered the regiment to move to a new point. General Grant had decided to attack a little town called Port Gibson, which commanded the various approaches to Grand Gulf. If he could take that, he might shut up Bowen and his force in Grand Gulf. On the other hand, if he failed, he might be shut in himself by Confederate armies gathering from Jackson, Vicksburg, and elsewhere. The region, moreover, was complicated for both armies by the mighty Mississippi and the big Black River, itself a large stream, and there were deep and often unfordable bayous. But Grant showed great qualities, and Dick, who was experienced enough now to see and know, admired him more than ever. He pushed forward with the utmost resolution and courage. His vanguard, led by McClernand, and including the Winchester Regiment, seized solid ground near Port Gibson, but found themselves confronted by a formidable southern force. Bowen, who commanded in Grand Gulf, was brave and able. Seeing the Union army marching towards his rear, and knowing that if Grant took it, he would be surrounded, both on land and water, by a force outnumbering his nearly three to one, he marched out at once and took station two miles in front of Port Gibson. Dick was by the side of Colonel Winchester as he rode forward. The faint echo of shots from the skirmishers far in front showed that they had roused up an enemy. Glasses were put in use at once. The Confederates are before us, said Colonel Winchester. So they are, and we're going to have hard fighting, said a major. Look what a position! Dick said nothing, but he was using his glasses too. He saw before him rough ground, thickly sown with underbrush. There was also a deep ravine, or rather marsh, choked with vines, bushes, reeds, and trees, that like a watery soil. The narrow road divided, and went around either side of the long work, where the two divisions united again, on a ridge, on which Bowen placed his fine troops and artillery. "'I don't see their men yet, except a few skirmishers,' said Dick. "'No, but we'll find them in some good place beyond it,' replied Colonel Winchester, divining Bowen's plan. It was night when the army, in two divisions, one turning to the right and the other to the left, began the circuit of the great marshy ravine. Dick noticed that the troops who had struggled so long in mud and water were eager. Here, west of the Alleghenies, the men in blue were always expecting to win. The sky was sown with stars, casting a filmy light over the marching columns. Dick was with the troops passing to the right, and he observed again the springy and eager tread. Nor was the night without a lively note. Skirmishers, eager riflemen prowling among the bushes, fired often at one another, and now and then a Union cannon sent a shell screaming into some thick clump of forest, lest the foe be lurking there for ambush. The reports of the rifles and cannon kept everyone alert and watchful. Early in the night, while it was yet clear, Dick often saw the flashes from the firing, but as the morning hours approached, heavy mists began to rise from that region of damp earth and great waters. He shivered more than once, and, on the advice of Sergeant Whitley, 
wrapped his cavalry cloak about him. Chills and fever, said the sergeant sententiously. So much water and marsh, it's hard to escape it. The sooner we fight, the better. Well, that's what General Grant thinks already, said Dick. So I suppose he doesn't need chills and fever to drive him on. All the same, sergeant, I'll wrap up as you say. All the men in the Winchester Regiment were soon doing the same. The mists of the Mississippi, the big black, and the bayous were raw and cold, although it would be hot later on. But the period of coldness did not last long. Soon the low sun showed in the east, and the warm daylight came. In the new light they saw the Confederate forces strongly posted on the ridge where the halves of the road rejoined. As the Union column came into view, a cannon boomed, and a shell burst in the road so near that dirt was thrown upon them as it exploded, and one man was wounded. At the same time, the column on the left under Osterhaus appeared, having performed its semicircle about the marsh, and the whole Union army, weary of body but eager of soul, pressed forward. The Winchester Regiment and the Ohio Regiment beside it charged hotly, but were received with a fire of great volume and accuracy that swept them from the road. Another battery on their far left also raked them with a cross-fire, and so terrible was their reception that they were compelled to abandon some of their own cannon and seek shelter. The Winchester Regiment, except the officers, were not mounted in this march, as Grant would not wait for their horses, which were on another transport. The very fact saved from death many who would have made a more shining target. Dick's own horse was killed at the first fire, and as he leaped clear to escape, he went down to his waist in a marsh, another fact which saved his life a second time, as the new volley swept over his head. The horses of other officers also were killed, and the remainder, finding themselves such conspicuous targets, sprang to the ground. The frightened animals, tearing the reins from their hands, raced through the thickets or fell into the marsh. All the time Dick heard the shells and bullets shrieking and whining over his head. But regaining his courage and presence of mind, he slowly pulled himself out of the marsh, taking shelter behind a huge cypress that grew at its very edge. As he dashed the mud out of his eyes, he heard a voice saying, "'Don't push. There's room enough here for the three of us.' In fact, there's room enough behind the big trees for all the officers. It was Warner who was speaking with such grim irony, and Pennington by his side was hugging the tree. Shells and shot shrieked over their heads, and countless bullets hummed about them. The soldiers also had taken shelter behind the trees, and Warner's jest about the officers was a jest only. Nevertheless, the southern fire was great in volume and accuracy. Bowen was an able commander with excellent men, and from his position that covered the meeting of the roads, he swept both Union columns with a continuous hail of death. "'We must get out of this somehow,' said Dick. "'If we're held here in these swamps and thickets any longer, the Johnnies can shoot us down at their leisure.' "'But we won't be held,' exclaimed Pennington. "'Look! One of our brigades is through, and it's charging the enemy on the right.' It was Hovey who had forced his way through a thicket, supposed to be impenetrable, and who now, with a full brigade behind him, was rushing upon Bowen's flank. Then, while the southern defence was diverted to this new attack, the Winchester and the Ohio Regiment attacked in front, shouting with triumph. Hovey's rush was overpowering. He drove in the southern flank, 
taking four cannon and hundreds of prisoners. But the dauntless Confederate commander, withdrawing his men in perfect order, retreated to a second ridge, where he took up a stronger position than the first. Resolute and dangerous, the men in grey turned their faces anew to the enemy and sent back a withering fire that burned away the front ranks of the Union army. Osterhaus, in spite of every effort, was driven back, and the Winchesters and their Ohio friends were compelled to give ground, too. It seemed that the utmost of human effort and defiance of death could not force the narrow passage. But a new man, a host in himself, came upon this field. Grant, who had been on foot for two days, endeavouring to get his army through the thickets and morasses, heard the booming of the cannon, and he knew that the vanguards had clashed. He borrowed a cavalry horse and, galloping toward the sound of the guns, reached the field at mid-morning. Grant was not impressive in either figure or manner, but the soldiers had learned to believe in him, as they always believe in one who leads them to victory. A tremendous shout greeted his coming, and the men, snatching off their hats and caps, waved them aloft. Grant took no notice, but rapidly disposed his troops for a new and heavier battle. Dick felt the strong and sure hand over them. The Union fire grew in might and rapidity. McPherson arrived with two brigades to help Osterhaus, and the strengthened division was able to send a brigade across a ravine, where it passed further around Bowen's flank and assailed him with fury. Dick felt that their own division under McClernand was also making progress. Although many men were falling, they pressed slowly forward, and Grant brought up help for them, too. For a long time, the struggle was carried on. It was one of the little battles of the war, but its results were important, and few were fought with more courage and resolution. Bowen, with only 8,000 against 20,000, held fast throughout the long hot hours of the afternoon. Grant, owing to the nature of the field, was unable to get all his numbers into battle at once. But when the twilight began to show, Dick believed that victory was at hand. They had not yet driven Bowen out, but they were pressing him so close and hard, and Grant was securing so many new positions of advantage, that the southern leader could not make another such fight against superior numbers in the morning. Twilight turned into night, and Bowen and his men, who had shown so much heroism, retreated in the dark, leaving six guns and many prisoners as trophies of the victors. It was night when the battle ceased. Cannons and rifles flashed at fitful intervals, warning skirmishers to keep away. But after a while they too ceased, and the Union army, exhausted by the long march of the night before and the battle of the day, threw itself panting upon the ground. The officers posted the sentinels in triple force, but let the remainder of the men rest. As Dick lay down in the long grass, two or three bullets dropped from his clothes, and he became conscious, too, that a bullet had grazed his shoulder. But these trifles did not disturb him. It was so sweet to rest. Nothing could be more heavenly than merely to lie there in the long, soft grass and gaze up at the luminous sky into which the stars now stole to twinkle down at him peacefully. "'Don't go to sleep, Dick,' said a voice near him. "'I admit the temptation is strong. I feel it myself. "'But General Grant may have to send you and me forward tonight "'to win another battle.' "'George, I'm glad to hear your preachy voice over there. "'Hurt any?' "'No. A million cannonballs brushed my right cheek, "'and another million brushed my left cheek, "'but they didn't touch me. 
They scared me to death, but in the last few minutes I've begun to come back to life. In a quarter of an hour I'll be just as much alive as I ever was. Do you know anything of Pennington? Yes, the rascal is lying about six feet beyond me, sound asleep. In spite of all I could do, he wouldn't stay awake. I've punched him all over to see if he was wounded, but as he didn't groan at a single punch, he's all right. That being the case, I'm going to follow Pennington's example. You may lecture me as much as you please, George, but you'll lecture me only the night, because I'll be far away from here in a land of sweet dreams. All right, if you're going to do it, I will too. You'll hear my snore before I hear yours. Both sank in a few minutes into a deep slumber, and when they awoke the next morning, they found that Bowen had abandoned Port Gibson and had retreated into Grand Gulf again. There was great elation among the lads, and Dick began to feel that the position of the Union Army in the far south was strengthened immeasurably. He heard that Sherman, who had stood so staunchly at Shiloh, was on his way to join Grant. Their united forces would press the siege of Grand Gulf, and would also turn to strike at any foe who might approach from the rear. Never since the war began had Dick felt so elated as he did that morning, when he saw the short, thick-set figure of Grant riding by. He believed that the Union, in the West at least, had found its man at last. End of chapter 3, part 2